0: Worksheet number six, Antichrist Evidence, part one. Now, anytime you have a part one, what does that automatically imply? There's going to be a part two. You don't want to miss it. Now, it's not going to be tomorrow night, but it is going to be Friday night, and we're going to go back again after that. Saturday night, and then Sunday night. We're only going to spend two nights on this topic, but it deserves two nights worth of material. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that tonight, you will not discover who the Antichrist is. Right? Don't have your hopes up, because I know that's what you're hoping on. I don't know what you're hoping on, but if that was your hope, okay, put that aside, save that for Friday night. Okay? Tonight what we're going to discover is who the Antichrist isn't. Before you can learn, a lot of times we have to unlearn. It takes a little brain scrubbing, if you want to call it, like clear out the pathways and see what the Bible actually says. But tonight we're going to be discovering not who the Antichrist is, but who the Antichrist isn't who the Antichrist isn't. And before we begin our study, of course, we want to pray to Jesus Christ that we have an understanding of his word clearly. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity, the privilege of coming together in Christian fellowship and studying your word. Now we ask that you send your Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of that word to give us clear understanding of that word and an application in our lives. Help us to see you more clearly than ever before. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we launch off into a study of the Antichrist and what this, this power that the Bible speaks of is, I want to be patently clear. This series of meetings is not all about the Antichrist. It's about Jesus Christ, correct? A knowledge of the Antichrist will not save you, but a knowledge of Jesus Christ is what we all need for salvation. Is that clear? okay? Let's make sure we can see that biblically and then why the importance of studying the Antichrist. If it's all about Jesus Christ, why even worry about the Antichrist? Well, we'll take a look at that too. But let's start in 2 Corinthians tonight in the New Testament, page 1113 in your pew Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting with verse 5. It's an easy text. Remember, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, 6, okay? Chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, page 11, 13, verses 5 and 6. Notice what it says here. The Apostle Paul is preaching about Jesus, as he does. And it says here, we do not preach whom? Ourselves. We're not preaching about us. We don't want you to fall in love with us. We don't want you like us. We want you to know and love Jesus Christ and the God who sent him. He makes this clear. For we do not preach ourselves, but whom? Christ Jesus, The Lord. And our say and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So notice God wants us to learn and know Him through Jesus Christ. And having a knowledge of Jesus Christ and the God who he is and who sinned to him is the mo- most important thing in salvation. In fact, let's continue on with this theme. Go to the Apostle Peter, 2 Peter, chapter 1. 2 Peter, chapter 1. And another easy one to remember, verses 2 and 3. 2 Peter 1, verses 2 and 3. That's going to be page 1165. It starts on the very bottom of that page and goes over to 1166. 2 Peter, chapter 1. Verses 2 and 3. Here the apostle writes, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the, what's that word? Knowledge of whom? God. Notice we don't get grace and peace by knowing about God's enemy. We know from knowing God himself. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, as his divine power has given to us all things and that pertain to life, and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And he goes on to say more things there. But I want to highlight here for, for the Apostle Paul and for the Apostle Peter that knowledge of God is the key to salvation. Knowing Jesus Christ is the utmost important thing in this world. John chapter 17. What does Jesus say about this topic? John chapter 17. That's going to be page 1045. John chapter 17, Jesus himself speaking. We pick up in verse 3. Jesus is praying to the Father. Jesus still on earth, speaking to his Father in heaven. And notice what he says. And this is eternal life. Now, before we go on with the rest of this sentence, do you think this is an important sentence to know? Jesus health is about to say, this is eternal life. So it's very important, whatever he's about to say. And this is eternal life, that they may, what's that verb? Know whom? You. And who's he speaking to? His Father. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Patently clear. Jesus himself says, This is eternal life. A knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ is what my mission is. It's what I'm trying to get across. It is salvation for you. This is eternal life. A knowledge of Jesus Christ. So then the question is, Why do we need to study the Antichrist if all we need to know is Jesus Christ? Well, think about this. Satan also studies his scriptures, does he not? Absolutely. And he knows that a knowledge of the true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent is salvation for us, and his goal is for us to not be saved. So he wants to impede our knowledge of God and Jesus Christ, as we've already talked about, by smearing his character, by besmirching his image, and getting us to be deceived about God. So we don't actually know God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Which brings up to this fill-in-the-blank on your worksheet an interesting point and perhaps a disturbing thought, but is it possible to think or believe you're following Jesus when in reality, when you're actually following his enemy? Is it possible to think you're following Jesus only to in real life be following the enemy of Jesus. If the goal is to know Jesus Christ, it would seem like Satan's goal is to get you away from that. Thus, we have the Antichrist. This whole concept of an Antichrist is probably something we need to think a little bit more deeply about. Before we identify who or what this power even is, we want to talk about what is the essence of the Antichrist. What's the even purpose of there being an Antichrist? What does it all mean? So let's study this out. How does Satan work. Let's go back to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. We've seen this passage several times. Page 1182 in your pew Bible. Going back to the beginning of this whole great controversy, this this cosmic battle between Christ and his angels and Satan and his angels. And notice what it says, chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon And the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So, the great dragon was cast out. And here it tells us who that great dragon is. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan. And notice what it is he does. Who, what's that verb? Deceives. Notice it doesn't say who persecutes or oppresses or harms, even though I'm sure he would love to persecute, oppress, and harm What weapon does he use? Who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So Satan's most effective weapon is deception. It's not oppression. It's not persecution. It's not force or brutal violence. It's simple deception. Let's go on. Jesus, back in John chapter 8 page 1035 in your pew bible. John chapter 8. You recall this encounter that began in verse 37 when Jesus was having this conversation with the religious leaders at the time who claimed to be the true descendants of Abraham and Jesus confessed, "Yes, genetically you are children of Abraham, but you're not of the spirit of Abraham because you want to kill me and Abraham never once tried to kill me. You on the other hand don't do the will of my father. In fact, you do the will and what did he say of your father. And look at verse 44. Who is this father that they're doing the will of? You are of your father. What's the Bible say? The devil. And notice this. And the desires of your father you want to do. What are those desires? He was a murderer from the beginning. And did they want to murder Jesus? Absolutely. And does not stand in the truth. Now, fascinating. In order to, if you were to study the life of Christ, and especially the closing scenes of the life of Christ when he was led to the crucifixion, he was not led there fairly and squarely. He had a mock trial where they had to bring people up on the stand and perjure themselves and lie, right? Because the truth would not have put Jesus on the cross. But the desires of their father they wanted to do, they wanted to murder Jesus, and in order to do that, they had to tell lies. Again, verse 44, you are of your father the devil and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a, what's that word? Liar and the father of it. Again, Satan's most effective weapon. In fact, I would go so far as to say his only effective weapon is deception. If Satan showed up in some sort of picture caricature that we think the devil would look like, I don't even need to act it out for you, you know, but you have a picture in your mind of what some satanic, awful, evil thing would, and he shows up, he's like, follow me. You would be like, "Mm -mm, no, Mm -mm, I don't, you're scary. I don't want to have anything to do with you, right? It would not be effective, but it doesn't say he does that. It says he deceives, He tells lies. In fact, he goes on to say, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, page 1118. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15, that's page 1118 in your pew Bible, describes the work of the followers of Satan and Satan himself. Apparently, they were the true apostles that Jesus Christ had sent out, of course, And there were some false apostles. And one of these things you're going to notice as we go along, we might as well put the concept in your head tonight, that everything that God does true, everything truly instituted by God, Satan has an opposite counterfeit. Okay, Everything that God does true, Satan has a false. For every genuine article, Satan has a counterfeit. Now watch this now. Chapter 11, 2 Corinthians, starting with verse 14. Well, that was verse 13. For such are false prophets, and notice the next word, what kind of workers are they? Deceitful workers. So they're not telling the truth. They're deceiving people. Deceitful workers transforming themselves into what? Apostles of Christ. Now, let's think about that. If they wanted to be a false apostles, apostles, how would they get people to believe them? Well, they want to come across as true apostles, right? That only makes sense. You never come up to someone and say, by the way, I'm about to tell you a lie. Wouldn't it kind of undermine the whole scheme? right? So notice again, verse 13, what he says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. So they're not going to tell you right off the bat, I am a false apostle, because they would have no followers. So verse 14, and where did they learn that from? And no wonder, the Bible says, for whom Satan himself does what? Transforms himself into an angel of light. When he came to Jesus in the wilderness, do you think he showed up as this evil creature? Ah, No. Oh, I'm here to hell. So good to see. Oh, I'm so sorry you're having a difficult time. In fact, I've been sent with a message from God. You're allowed to just do a little miracle for yourself. Just turn these stones into bread. In fact, you don't even have to go to Calvary. Just worship me. This one, you know, Really smooth. How did he come to the woman in the, in the, in the Garden of Eden? He didn't say, hi, I'm the enemy of God. No, 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 no. I'm here to help. It's going to be better for you. Deceitful. He dresses up. As an angel of light, according to Scripture. Thus, it makes sense when Jesus talks about end time events, Matthew chapter 24, or page 960 in your Pew Bible, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 4, right after they ask him, you remember last night's twofold question? When will all these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age that you see right there in verse 3? Jesus' first response, he said, what should we look for when we think about your coming, as we look forward to the coming and the end of the world? And Jesus, verse 4, answered and said to them, take heed that no one, what's that word? deceives you. He doesn't say, watch out for earthquakes. Now, he does mention those, but he says, the very first thing I want you to know, is not about earthquakes, it's not about disease, it's not about war, it's about deception." take heed, that means watch out, be prepared, don't let anyone deceive you, because, as he goes on in verse 5, for many will come, how? In my name. Going so far even, claiming that I am the Christ, and will, what's that word? Deceive many. Satan is a deceiver, he is a liar. In fact, not just a liar, he's the liar from which all other liars have learned their trade. Okay? The father of lies, and he works by deception. Therefore, those who are of his same spirit, as Jesus called out, will work in the same methodology. False things don't show up claiming to be false, or it wouldn't work. Okay? Now think about, the, think about this. Deception, let's go to our fill-in-the-blank, the essence of deception. What does it mean to be deceived? Deception only happens when you think it isn't happening. Write that down. Deception only happens when you think it isn't happening. No one who is being deceived is aware that they're being deceived. Otherwise, they would no longer be deceived, right? The essence, you ask somebody who's being deceived. Are you being deceived? You know what they're going to say? Nope. You know? So now the problem becomes, you can think you're doing one thing well, but in reality, you're doing the exact opposite. How do you know the difference? When Christ says, take heed that no one deceives you, how do you determine whether something is true or false, whether it's the original or the counterfeit? How do you know the difference? Well, as we've just seen, by the way, Satan knows the best way to get away with something bad is to make it seem what? Good. Like if someone put out on a table a bottle of poison with the skull and crossbones on it, and it was smelly and it was scary, I doubt many people would be lured into drinking it. That gives off warning signs, red flashing lights. Don't drink this, and very few people, if any, ever would. So you could have much, 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 much more poison sitting there but it would be ineffective if you can't get anyone to drink it. However, you took the same substance and mixed it into a nice glass of water or some sort of beautiful smelling juice, you'd have much, much, much greater success if you can turn that counterfeit into something that smacks of the original. Right? This is the essence of deception. It only happens when you think it isn't happening. Now, Let's apply this to the Antichrist. Many people fully expect the Antichrist to be a sinister politician or a military leader or some similar type of overtly evil figure who will appear at the very end of time to openly oppose God and make war with Christians. Okay? The vast majority of the Christian world has this picture of the Antichrist in their head that it's openly against God, it will only show up at the very end of time, it will oppose all of Christianity, it will be a political figure, a military figure, some sort of pagan heathen thing, or some sort of sinister overtly evil that you can spot and say, look at that! That is evil itself, that is the Antichrist. But that, friends, is not how Satan works. If he wants you to believe that something in the place of Jesus Christ, it's going to have to dress up as something Christ-like, right? Now, Scripture paints a vastly different picture than what most people believe about the Antichrist. Thankfully, God has not left us in the dark as to the identity of this nefarious personage. Now, wouldn't it be awful? Think about this. If God, because, you know, we talk about end-time events, and again, earthquakes and pestilences and earth—I mean, famines and all the different wars. And all those signs at the end we look for. And as we get into end time events, as we study prophecy, we also see warnings about this Antichrist, these deceptive people who are going to come, this power that's going to be warring against God's people. And Jesus says, watch out for it. And you say, oh, okay, I don't want to follow the Antichrist. I don't want to be deceived. And you say, Lord, what is the Antichrist? He says, I'm not going to tell you. You're just going to have to guess. First of all, that's pretty mean. For him to say, watch out for something, you say, watch out for what? And he's like, oh, I can't tell you that. What's the point of that, right? And second of all, that doesn't fit the character of God that we've seen. God is not only a creator, he relates to us and he communicates with us. In fact, I mean, we're reading from a book, right? He's demonstrated He wants us to know things. It's not in the character of God to withhold vital information from us. He does everything and He writes it down. He says, here's what I'm going to do. Here's my plan. Know it for yourself. Be prepared. Yet somehow the world says, well, the Bible warns us about an antichrist, but we just have to guess what it's going to be. No, you don't. Praise God, He communicates the truth to us so we can discern between the Trinuan and the counterfeit. God has not left us in the dark as to the identity of this personage. The Bible provides more than enough information to conclusively identify who or what this Antichrist power really is. Now, when we get into the Antichrist, again, tomorrow night, we're going to talk, I mean, not tomorrow night. Don't, don't fall for a deceiver here, okay? <laughs> Friday night, that's the truth of the matter. Friday night, when we come back, we're going to talk about what the, who or what the Antichrist is The burden of tonight's message is to disabuse your mind so you don't have a cluttery thinking of what the Antichrist isn't. Right? We want to clear out the space in your head so we can be ready for identifying it. And friends, it's going to be clear enough that I don't have to tell you. You will see it for yourself directly from Scripture. Is that clear? Okay. Let's continue on now. Now, this term Antichrist. It is in the Bible. It is a term that's in the Bible, though it is not often used in the Bible. In fact. Only one author actually employs the term Antichrist, and it's the Apostle John. And it's not even in the book. You think, oh, yeah, that's John writing in Revelation. No, the book of Revelation doesn't use the word Antichrist. Neither does it the Gospel of John. You only find it in the letters of John, 1st and 2nd, 3rd John, uh, the epistles there, 1st and 2nd John, I might say. But there are references to this entity, this power besides just the few mentions of the word antichrist there are other terminologies used for this same presence the same force the same power besides just the antichrist that you find in 1 John and 2 John for instance in the prophetic book of Daniel Daniel chapter 7 and Daniel chapter 8 refers to the same power except instead of calling it the antichrist it calls it the little horn you think what Got to come back on the subsequent night, okay? Namely, Friday night. The little horn, Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. Also, in the book of Revelation, it does make mention of this same power, but it doesn't refer to it as the term Antichrist. It refers to it as the beast from the sea, okay? Also, 2 Thessalonians, the apostle Paul refers to this same power, calling calling it the man of sin or the son of perdition. We're going to be looking at that a little later this evening. You will also find other references to it in the book of Revelation. You'll find it referred to as Babylon or the mother of harlots. I mean, some pretty unflattering things if you think about it. Man of sin, son of perdition, little horn, beast from the sea, Babylon, mother of harlots, antichrist. None of those sound positive. okay? And it's well intended. They're not positive. But those are not different things. They're all referring to the same entity, the same power that John refers to as the Antichrist. But we're not going to look at all those different references tonight. We're going to make 2 Thessalonians our home base for the rest of this study. So let's go there now, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. That's going to be page 1138 in your pew Bible. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Here, the Apostle Paul is looking forward to, in history, looking down the stream of uh, prophetic events, and he makes some certain uh, statements about the condition of the church and what's going to be going on in the church after this early stage of the church, after his departure, as we get closer and closer to the coming of the Lord. Now, notice what he says here, starting with verse 1. Now, brethren, Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. So everything we're about to read is in reference to Jesus' return, okay? Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now, I believe that Paul wanted to see the day of Christ's return come in his lifetime. He would love to have seen Jesus face to face, but notice he apparently, he had to write to this church in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, for a second time. This is second Thessalonians. And apparently there was a trouble within the church stirring. Rumor had it that the day of Christ, his return, either had already happened or was imminent. It was even at the door right then and there. And apparently people were saying, oh, Paul said, Paul said this. I mean, they're writing to us. I saw it in Paul's own. I heard it from his own. And notice what he does to correct this. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Don't think that the day of Christ already has come or it is coming right now. Why would he say this? You know, usually we preach Jesus is coming soon. We did it just last night. Jesus is coming quickly. Paul says slow down. And it's not because he didn't want Jesus to come. And he didn't he truly believed that Jesus was going to return. But notice what he says, verse 3. Let no one, what's that word? deceive you by any means. Apparently, there is a deception about the return of Christ that was starting to kind of circulate around amongst the people of Thessalonica. And he says, friends, don't even even think about it for a moment. Let no one deceive you by any means. And now notice what he says. For that day, that's capital D, the day the Lord returns, the end of the world, for that day will not come boy, I thank the Lord that the sentence doesn't end there, right? Now, he's not saying the day of the Lord won't come. What he's saying is the day of the Lord won't come until something happens first. The falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, right? Now, we've outlined here, you know, From Daniel chapter 2, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Rome divides into these ten kingdoms. They've divided Europe. And here we stand at the end of that train of history. The very next event is the coming of Jesus Christ. But he says, in that day where they were living, this is during the time of imperial Rome. The legs of iron was when Paul was writing. And he says, yes, Jesus is coming, but it's not right now. And the way we know it's not happening right now is because there are some things that have to occur, what? First, before this happens, we need to see whatever this is here happen first. And what is that thing that he refers to as occurring first? Something had to be revealed. Let no one deceive you, many. that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And again, that let no one deceive you, I have that little Matthew 24 reference in there, because that's exactly what Jesus said about the coming of the Lord. Let no one deceive you. Now think about the logic of this. The only things that can fall away are things that at one point were together. Does that make sense? You can't fall away from something you weren't joined together with to start with. Okay, now, interestingly enough, that term falling away in Greek is, this, is synonymous with divorce. The same verbiage you use for a divorce of a marriage, the dissolution of that bond, is the same thing they're talking about, the falling away that would have to come before Jesus Christ comes. And the question is falling away from what? the implication is something's going to fall away within the church before Jesus Christ returns. Now again, the picture that most people have in their mind is the Antichrist is outside the church to oppose it and come in and crush it and hurt it. But Paul's language here, and as we're going to see very explicitly, talks about a falling away from within the community of faith. And notice what he says. It goes on. That the man of sin may be revealed, what's that next term, the son of what? Now you can search your Bible high and low, you'll find two references to this phrase, the son of perdition. The one that Paul just used right there in 2 Thessalonians, son of perdition, and one other person used that phrase, son of perdition, in all of scripture. Anyone know who it is? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ used that term, and we're going to look it up. Go back to John chapter 17, page 1045, as we try to get the correct conception of this Antichrist power. John chapter 17 and verse 12. Jesus, in his prayer to his Father, at the close of his ministry here, speaking about his own disciples, says to his Father in heaven, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Again, them is his disciples, his followers. I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is what? Lost, except whom? The son of perdition. Now, he's referring to his disciples, and apparently one among his disciples was this son of perdition. Was he talking about Matthew? No. How about Peter? James? No. Who's the one that he's talking about? Judas. Right? Judas Iscariot, to be clear. Okay? There was only one, and that one was from within his own ranks, right? And it's interesting That one was part of the inner circle, and it fell away and betrayed him from within. He was not a Greek. He was not a Roman. He was not a pagan. He was not a heathen. He was not even part of the religious leadership that openly opposed Christ. In fact, on the outside, it looked like he was a supporter of Jesus Christ. He was in his inner circle. But Jesus refers to him as this son of perdition from within the disciples. And it's interesting that Paul in 2 Thessalonians, when describing the Antichrist power, refers to him as the son of perdition. Again, that talks about from the inside falling away, not from the outside coming in to persecute. A different perception of the Antichrist power. In fact, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 page 1075 in your pew bible acts chapter 20 the apostle paul obviously has this thinking of a falling away from within the church on his mind as he speaks to the leaders of the early christian church here in acts chapter 20 now to give you some context the apostle paul is coming as we're going to find out to the towards the end of his life his ministry on earth and he's headed to jerusalem and people have been begging him, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go. No, I must go to Jerusalem, I must go. But he knows that there's a sense of danger there about this trip to Jerusalem that he's taking. And he gathers together the elders of the church of Ephesus, and he has a talk with them. And notice what he says in verse 28. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So notice these are the leaders of the church he's talking to. And he said, take heed to yourself and to all the flock, because you are leaders that the Holy Spirit has put up. Verse 29, for I know this. So he's writing with a very secure sense of certainty here, assuredness. I know this, that after my departure, and he's talking about his death, right? After I fade off the scene, after I'm done and gone, after my departure, savage wolves will come in, where? Among you, not sparing the flock. And verse 30 makes it patently clear. Also from among yourselves. And he's speaking to the leaders of the church, from among yourselves men will rise up now this is very as we're going to go on to Daniel chapter 7 on Friday night and go forward in these biblical prophetic chapters of scripture notice this language here men from among yourselves will rise up speaking perverse things to what end to draw away the disciples after themselves right now they're the leaders of the church they're supposed to be drawing people to jesus correct but instead they're going to be drawing people to themselves boy does that sound like anyone in heaven right lucifer we talked about that he was the right hand man of god one of those covering cherubs and his whole point was to uh uh, to lead people in worship of god but he started to siphon off some of that glory for himself Remember what Jesus said, the desires of your father you want to do? Paul says, I know this, that after my departure, from with- among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw people away to themselves. Fascinating. Therefore, watch and remember that for, for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Obviously, this is very significant for the Apostle Paul. He's like, I've done this for years with tears now, and you have to know, I probably am not going to see you again, but after my departure, this will happen. I know it for certain, okay? This is the same Apostle Paul who we, as we go back to Second Thessalonians chapter 2, is writing this counsel. Second Thessalonians again, chapter 2. Told you that's going to be home base for the rest of our study. When he says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. And again, that son of perdition comes from within the church and falls away instead of being an oppressor who comes from the outside to attack. Mm. Now it goes on to describe him even more. Who opposes, verse 4, And exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, is this Antichrist power opposed to God? Yes. Very clearly it says it right in the text. But in his opposition of God, he doesn't show up as God's enemy and say, I'm just going to fight you right now. No, 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 no. In order to oppose God, he tries to replace God. Do you see that? Okay, look at it in the text again. Let's read it once again, and we'll fill this out. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself Above all that is called God, or that is worshiped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, another popular belief is that the temple in Jerusalem will be physically rebuilt, and then this military power, this Antichrist beast that we think of, will come and sit in that temple and try to rule the world. But friends, let me show you directly from Scripture that that is not what the Apostle Paul had in mind when he said the temple of God. Most Almost exclusively, when Paul writes of the temple of God, he's not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. By the way, what did Jesus say was going to happen in that temple in Jerusalem? It was going to be destroyed, right? It's, and that was not too far. He's not looking inside of this physical temple. He's talking about something else, and we can prove this from Scripture. Go to 1 Corinthians It's going to be page 1100, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. When the Apostle Paul talks about the temple of God, what is he actually saying? Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Notice what he writes. Do you not know that you are the what? Temple of God. So he's using this analogy to talk about people, not a building, not a place, but a people. Okay? Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. And again, he's not talking about going graffitiing on rocks, right? He's talking about the people constitute the temple of God. If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. When Paul invokes the phrase temple of God, he's talking about people, specifically the church of God, not a building called the temple. In fact, let's look at another one. 2 Corinthians, just turn to the right, one book. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16. Here he uses the phrase, the temple of God again. Again, this is the same author who wrote 2 Thessalonians, where the Antichrist is going to sit in the temple of God. What does it mean to sit in the temple of God? I believe it's not a place in the Middle East. I believe it's God's people on the earth. Again, he says here, verse 16, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. And he quotes scripture to back it up, Old Testament scripture that looked forward to the New Testament time. He says here, continuing verse 16, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. When Paul talks about the temple of God, he's not talking about a place or a building. He's talking about the church, the people of God on earth. Is this clear? So when he says, back in 2 Thessalonians now, that this one who will oppose and exalt himself as God will sit in the temple of God, what is he talking about? He's going to sit inside of the church and put himself in the place where God should be. In his effort to oppose God, he's going to make a substitute for God. Fascinating. Fascinating. Which, by the way, if you were to look this up in the dictionary, you think of, well, the term is called antichrist. That means against Christ. Well, yes, it does mean to oppose something, to be against it. But also, you can look this up anytime you want. It also means in the place of, or a substitute or counterfeit for, a swap. And I believe this is how Satan wants to oppose God. The same warfare that he started in heaven... With a war not of weapons but a war of words he has brought down to the earth and that is his one effective weapon, his deception. He doesn't want to come out and be the open opposer of God. He wants to be a subtle imposter of God, sit in the temple of God and be worshipped as such. So being in the place of God has been Satan's ultimate aim. You recall this and I'll, I'll just read it to you. It's not written down there but this little extra text if you'd like it back in Ezekiel chapter I mean Isaiah chapter 14 you recall the original motive in the heart of Lucifer that got him cast out of heaven starting with verse 13 for you have said in your heart i will ascend into heaven and notice the language that it sounds so similar to second Thessalonians i will exalt my throne above the stars of god i will sit on i will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And apparently there's going to be a power on the earth who sits in the church doing the same thing that Lucifer tried to do in the courts of heaven. Think about this. As God has his representative on the earth, Jesus Christ, to reveal his character to the world, Satan has his representative on the earth to reflect his character to the world. Okay? Thus, God the Father has Jesus Christ, and Satan the dragon has the Antichrist. Both claiming to be Christ, but one is true and one is false. One is the genuine, the other is the counterfeit. Again, thus it only makes sense that his uh, being in the place of God has been Satan's ultimate aim. Thus, it only makes sense that his representative on earth, the Antichrist, would try to take the place of God's representative on the earth, Jesus Christ. Again, we continue on 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're coming to a close, but just follow along the thinking of the Apostle Paul here. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we're going to pick up at verse 6. And he goes on to say, And now you know what is restraining that he, still talking about this son of perdition, this Antichrist power, may be revealed in his own... What's that word? All right, now we're not going to focus too much on this concept tonight, but when we come back to uh, Friday night, we're going to hit this very clearly, that apparently there was a time in which this Antichrist power would be fully revealed, okay? But for right now, there was a power restraining that Antichrist from fully being revealed or fully being mature and fully being developed, okay? Okay? Again, verse 6 And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Now, we can show you text after text. In fact, we're going to look at several of them here in just a moment. But the vast majority of the Christian world believes that the Antichrist is simply a power that will show up at the very end of time out of the clear blue shoop, to attack the people of God where according to the Apostle Paul, and we're also going to see, according to John, this spirit of Antichrist, this power of the Antichrist, was already at work in the earliest centuries of the church. At the very beginning of the apostolic church, it was already stirring. And Paul says, I know for certain that this will be matured and revealed in its own time. It's being restrained and withheld right now, but it's already stirring, already at work. And he goes on, only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Okay? So there's this power that's holding this Antichrist power in check, but at some point that's going to be pushed away, and this man of sin, this son of perdition, will be revealed, falling away from within the church. Okay. Continuing on. By the way, let me give you some passages about this. 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, it's page 1169, just to reinforce this concept that the Antichrist power that everyone thinks is going to be around just at the very end of time, the Bible writers saw it already at work in their time. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18, Little children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. And notice what it says in verse 19. Where do they come from? They went out from where? From us. Again, they're writing from from the perspective of the church and saying the Antichrist spirit, the power that's already coming out, is coming from within us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were, with, were of us. Both Paul and John talk about this and John's about to talk about the spirit of Antichrist, already agitating. Many Antichrists have gone out, and both both Paul and John refer to this Antichrist power as not coming from outside the church, but from falling away from within the church, coming from us, and at some point will be made manifest, will be made seen, will be revealed, as Paul would say. Let's look at another one, chapter four of the same book. Just turn over one page. Chapter 4 and verse 3. Well, we'll just start with verse 1. Let's give it some context. Beloved, do not believe every what? Spirit. Does that mean disbelieve every spirit? No. But you don't disbelieve everything, nor do you believe everything. What do you do? You're supposed to test the spirits. Notice it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits. So this is a great rule of thumb in the Christian walk. Not everything claiming to be spiritual is actually spiritual. Not everything claiming to be Christian is actually from Christ. Didn't Jesus say, let no one deceive you, many will come, how? In my name. There's false apostles, false prophets, apparently there's false teachers. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, right? There's a mindset, there's a spirit, there's a character of the Antichrist. And now watch this. Which you have heard was coming, future tense, and is now where? Already in the world repeatedly the bible authors the apostolic leaders as they look forward to the antichrist they said please disabuse your mind of the idea that the antichrist is just at the very last moment of earth's history apparently it's already at work in the earliest hours of the church and they said someday this is going to fully reveal itself be manifest paul would say there's something with restraining withholding this power for right now but in its time it will be revealed very clear. Very clear. So let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we finish up our study this evening, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now clearly I have not told you who the Antichrist is, but I hope we've made it very clear who the Antichrist isn't. Okay? Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Notice how he's going to work. Well, oh, it's just a few more things. Verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So, apparently, get this picture in your mind the spirit, as John would say, of the Antichrist is already at work in the world. Paul would say the same thing, but in Paul's time, there was some power keeping that Antichrist from fully developing and being fully revealed. Yet when it is fully revealed, it will continue until, as Paul says there, it is destroyed. And what will destroy the Antichrist? The second coming. The brightness of his coming. Okay? So apparently this power is not just some last few years of earth's history or a few weeks or a few months of scary times. No, no, no. Apparently it started in the early church. It develops over time. It fully reveals itself in a set period of time, and it will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming. Okay? So we're looking for a spiritual power coming from within the church, opposing God by putting himself in the place of God, has a set time to be developed and seen by all, and will be destroyed when Jesus comes again. Let's be very clear that that's what the Bible is telling us here. So let's uh, continue on here. Again, verse 8, "...when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will destroy, consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming." And how does he work? The coming of the lawlessness one is in according to the working of whom? Of course it's according to the working of Satan because he's Satan's representative on the earth. He works just like his father. Is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and what? Lying wonders. Which is how he works. By deception. By falsehood. By telling lies. Now, Let's come down to reviewing the evidence as we bring ourselves to a close here. Since knowing Jesus Christ means the hope of salvation for us, Satan is continuing his deceptive warfare through his representative, the Antichrist. The Bible describes the Antichrist as a subtle betrayer of Christ from inside God's people, not an open opposer of Christ from the outside. So while we have not said positively identified who the Antichrist is, I want to be clear that you know who the Antichrist isn't. It's not some sinister political or military power, some foreign heathen pagan nation state coming in at the very end of time to oppose all Christianity. No, 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 no. Apparently it's a power that had its spirit already churning in the early church, would be developed and revealed at a certain point in time would continue to work, claiming to be Christ, claiming to be in the name of Christ, but actually in opposition to Christ, and would not be destroyed until Jesus himself comes again, when Jesus Christ meets the Antichrist, and Jesus' kingdom is finally fully set up. Has tonight's message been clear? Has it, has, did you understand it? Okay, now you may not even agree with it yet, But I want you to go home, review the evidence for yourself. Look up the passage again, go home to get your favorite Bible out, make sure that those are in your Bible, and think, what is my picture of the Antichrist, and where did I get this? And if it's not what the Bible says, have the commitment to say, whatever the Bible says, I want to be faithful to that. I want to understand whatever the Bible says, and be faithful to that, because I don't want to accidentally follow the Antichrist, I want everything I do To be positioned squarely and exclusively on Jesus Christ alone, Amen. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who communicates your will to us, and we are living in the midst of a great battle. Boy, we have it. There's an angry foe out there. The Bible says he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And Lord, we don't want to be devoured. We don't want to be deceived. But Lord, help us not blithely go along, assuming we already know everything. Lord, help us to see what your word actually says and stick faithful to your word and your word alone. For only in Jesus Christ do we have our safety. Lord, help us to see him more clearly. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse,